0: I'm Jacob Efron, and this is Vital Signs, a podcast on cutting-edge trends in health tech and the people shaping them. Today, we're continuing a series we've been doing on trends in research and development in the life sciences space. I couldn't think of a better person to have on today than uh, Dr. Chris Gibson, co-founder and CEO of Recursion. Recursion is really at the forefront of using AI for drug discovery. Chris is an MD, PhD, who started Recursion with some really interesting algorithms to identify changes imperceptible to the human eye and cells. And since then, the company has just built out an incredible set of biological processes and analytics to improve drug discovery, kind of drawing on the massive data set they've been building over time. The goal is to kind of broaden the discovery funnel at the top and then better predict performance down the line. And the company's been quite successful, IPOing in April 2021, working across a kind of broad swath of disease areas today, both bringing their own compounds through trials, as well as doing some exciting partnerships on the life sciences side. Uh, so really interesting company. Chris, thanks so much for, for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, Jacob. I'm really excited to be here. I've got, I've got one quick edit there. So yeah. I actually dropped out of med school halfway through. Really? So okay. I'm i had thought... a PhD and then MD dropout, just for for clarity. That, that's, a, that's an important clarification. <laughs> I mean, still,
0: still a lot of schooling, a lot more schooling than I have, that's for sure.
1: That's right. That's you, still, right. you
0: still got the doctor one way or another? One way or the other. <laughs> Amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, to start off, I think, would love to kind of just hear a bit about the founding story of Recursion
1: and how you came to start the company. Perfect. Yeah, so I was working in the lab of a guy named Dean Lee at the University of Utah, on my MD-PhD at the time, no plans to drop out, and we you know wanted to be a, a cardiothoracic surgeon. And we were trying to understand a variety of genetic diseases, and we ended up working on one of those for a long time. I was part of this project to understand a disease called cerebral cavernous malformation, which is a mouthful, or CCM for short. Um, and after a decade in Dean's lab and me working on the project for a year or two, we thought we figured it out and we, we went to test our hypothesis and we failed. We actually made an animal model of the disease worse. And so it was like this humbling moment of biology where you know, we, we learned that we didn't understand it all, which is not surprising. And it was in that moment that we decided to take a less, I would say, biased approach, a less rational approach and actually just to ask the human cells to tell us what the answer might be. And so we started writing software, ended up transitioning to software that was already written by a woman named Ann Carpenter at the Broad called Cell Profiler that allowed us to basically train machine learning algorithms to recognize the differences in human cells with and without this disease using microscopy images and machine learning models. And and then we could add thousands of compounds and identify one that Maybe would make those cells look healthy again in an unbiased way, and that one of the drugs we identified using that approach is now in a phase two trial for that disease for CCM, and that was kind of the origin of the company. I decided to finish my PhD to take a leave of absence from med school, which I never went back to finish. When did you at. know it was going to be a company? So not immediately, as we started, you know, as we kind of did the project on CCM, we wondered. Like, I wonder if we could do this again. Could we do this for another genetic disease or maybe two or ten or a hundred or a thousand? And it was when we started having those conversations that Dean and I decided I would go to Stanford for the summer to a program called Ignite, which is, I mean, kind of like a mini MBA for scientists, Uh, mostly Stanford students, but a few from the outside. And I did that. It was amazing. And it was there that I I came back from that. And I was like, Dean, we're going to start a company. And he was like, no, you need to finish your M.D., and then I was like, no, no, no we're really going to start a company. He's like, OK, well, if you're going to start a company, then I'm doing it with you. And so that, that was history.
0: That's amazing. And I think you know, it would be helpful maybe for our listeners, you know, uh, before we dive into to more of the specifics, to maybe just at a high level kind of understand today how all the work recursion does kind of fits together. And maybe if we take an example of a compound that you're taking through trials today, just to think about how the, the kind of unique approach you have on the R&D side you know, leads to the insights to actually generate you know, now what
1: are some pretty exciting compounds. Yeah, so um, what we do is pretty complex. I'm going to start with an analogy. Okay. (laughs) So we're in the middle of a a vast wilderness and we're trying to figure out how to get to some mountaintop. And this is the vast wilderness of biology. Super complex, super hard to understand. And today, the molecular and cellular biology tools that most of the industry uses allow us to look at just little tiny sections of that wilderness. So we can understand sort of little tiny parts at a time. And ultimately, if you want to build a path to some mountaintop maybe some new treatment for a disease navigating that wilderness without a map is really, really hard. And the tools we have today, like I said, they only let us see little pieces at a time. So what Recursion did is ask, is there some way that we can build maps of this wilderness, maps of biology that allow us to plot a path from one point to another and to do that at scale? And the way we've done that is by generating very large omics data sets, so complex high dimensional data sets. Our foundation is using microscopy images of human cells, but other omics data sets, transcript omics as well, that we're scaling here at Recursion. And then we train machine learning systems to try and understand the similarities and differences, not between one disease and another, but across the entire genome and across more than a million compounds, and to really start to understand the topology of biology, chemistry, and how they all interact. So how that plays in a single program is we look at our map of biology, we look at some known anchor point like a genetic disease. So we know that patients who have a mutation in a gene called CCM1, CCM2, or CCM3, get this CCM disease. So we can look at our map and ask, is there anything in our map that tells us that there's some relevant unknown biology or chemistry that seems to be impinging on this process? And we don't have to go do any experiments today to do that. We've already knocked out every gene in the genome in several cell types. We've profiled now more than a million molecules at multiple doses. And so we do this in a web app where our scientists start with a web app of over nearly now four trillion relationships that we've predicted from nearly 200 million experiments we have done in the past at recursion in a giant automated lab. And we use those to generate hypotheses. And then we go test those in in our laboratories in a variety of kind of uh, relatively high-throughput ways, all the way down through animal models, where we've built machine learning systems to watch animals, uh, you know, in in their terrariums and, you know, identify whether drugs could be having not only beneficial effects, but also negative effects like like talks that we don't want to take into human trials. So it's technology at every step, big data at every step, machine learning wherever it's useful to try and help us make sense of this massive massive data set and mostly what we focus on is unexpected relationships in biology and looking at biology as a system hopefully that helps jacob yeah no it's super helpful and
0: i I guess one thing i'm curious about is obviously there's there's so many kind of algorithms you're using that are driving decision making internally Mm -hmm. and it seems like that was the genesis of the company you know i imagine over time this has evolved but how did you think about some of like the early demonstration points to give both you the confidence and then i'm sure obviously you're pitching investors a broader biotech community like what were those kind of demonstration points that said, actually, wow, it looks like we were onto something
1: here. So there's, there's really two flavors that we, that we like to look at. One was we asked, can we rediscover known biology? So I'll give you a great example if people want to go look this up so they know that I'm, I'm being honest here. I think it was the third week of April of 2020. We published a paper in the pandemic, the first few weeks of the pandemic, where we had taken live SARS-CoV-2 virus and added it to primary human cells. And then I think we looked at about 17 or 1800 FDA approved drugs. And we used this mapping and navigating approach and, and our technology to essentially predict whether drugs could have some useful effect. And so you go back and look at the preprint with the original date on it of April 2020. And what we could have told you then was that we don't think hydroxychloroquine is doing anything useful. It's not doing anything useful in the context of this disease. And this is back when that was a hot topic of discussion. Remdesivir, which had not yet read out of a clinical trial or a Gilead drug, looked extraordinarily powerful. And so far today, we're about eight for nine of molecules that were in our screen that have gone through randomized controlled trials, have read out trials that align with prediction we would have made about that molecule. So there's a great piece of leading evidence that the platform we're building is good and that we can do it quickly. Because we generated that data, we made it all open source. 300,000 images, all in the first few weeks of the pandemic, and we did it all at a biosafety level three facility that's like 70 miles away. So it wasn't even in our main facility because we're not authorized to work on the virus here. So, you know, that's a great example, and we have many other examples like that, none quite as dramatic, but many other examples like that where hard hard to top that. We basically rediscover known biology or predict biology that comes to a pass. And kind of what's the second demonstration point that you think about? So we basically make predictions using our map and then we go validate them. So we've got a really cool program in oncology in an area of ovarian cancer where we made this really novel prediction in our map about a totally novel target. And we then took that target and went and explored it in a gold standard animal model of the disease and had a really, really strong result. And so when we give statistics about how often we find something and then validate it, then that also gives investors and partners some confidence that, you know, this is worth investing in. I mean, one thing I'm
0: struck by is it seems like as the company's operated longer, obviously, you've taken some of these, you know, potential candidates into later and later stages of development. And so it seems like you've kind of built out some of these, you know, you mentioned the animal study models and, and algorithms around that. And I think, you know, it, it seems like the capabilities of recursion as a whole have just continued to increase the amount of stuff you do. And you talked about, I think, in a letter you wrote to shareholders around kind of moving from this like brute force research to more of a mapping focus in the, in the past year. And so would love to hear just a bit about like the evolution. It seems like you started with this core, you know, my cross models, and then you've just built a ton on top. Would love to hear some color on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think the reality is when you discover and develop a medicine, there's hundreds of critical steps along the way. And companies like ours, I think many companies like ours, have built really interesting technological or process innovations at a small number of those steps. But ultimately, you've got to string them all together to get a drug to patients. And so what we've done at Recursion, we've been fortunate to have really, really supportive investors, really supportive partners who've encouraged us to be bold, to believe that one could build a company that's sort of digitally native and that applies the best technology, sometimes machine learning or AI, sometimes not. Sometimes it's just good old-fashioned innovative processes or robotics. But we try to apply innovative steps, not at one point in the process, but at many, so, so that's really the philosophy we've taken. And we've had the, the supporters that have allowed us to have the resources to do that. Because I think each of these steps unlocks, you know, some value over time. And if you can stack them together and eventually build a company, and we've, we've got many more innovations to build in the future. We're nowhere near full stack, biopharma, soup to nuts. But we've built, I think, more innovations at more steps of the process than a- almost any other company in this space. And that's allowing us to get essentially a, a magnification or multiplication of these smaller effects at many steps uh, as we build that, that vertical. How
0: do you think about, I guess, drawing that line of, you know, it seems like as, as you go further and further, you know, there's probably, you look at every process of drug development, and I'm sure there's some things you can optimize. And then I imagine, you know, you look at other parts and you might say, hey, you know, this, this actually runs pretty well. <laughs> we we can mm-hmm. do this elsewhere. You know, I think actually particularly interesting might be even on, on the trial side, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm curious how you think about, you know, hey, these are things like recursion needs to own and we'll be best in class and we'll be better than how other folks do this. And Other parts, there might be, hey, you know, it actually like we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. Like someone else might be better served doing this in partnership with us.
1: I I think you've nailed it uh, exactly how we think about it. We ask the question, do we have an insight or an innovation or a technology or a team or a process that would allow us to do something here that we don't think others are doing? Or in some cases, we see that there are others doing really interesting things in a space, but we don't see an obvious way to catch up with them. So, you know, that animal technology, we did not build that internally recursion. We actually bought a company that we really admired that had, you know, made some decisions from a business model perspective that put them in a position where, you know, they were not well positioned to take advantage of their technology. We were. And so we actually acquired them and then built that into our process. So it's, we want the best process, the best technology, the best team, no matter where it comes from. Sometimes we can build it in-house. Sometimes it already exists externally and we can just, like you know, use the software somebody else has built. we love that if somebody's already built the software for us and we can just subscribe. But it's wherever the best technology is, how do we integrate that into what we're doing? No, and it seems like even with with the programs that you've done to date, you know, I think you
0: talked about this in, in your annual, you know, shareholder letter. You know, there's kind of this dual path of you can take them all the way and be an end-to-end therapeutics company, or obviously you've done some really interesting partnerships with big pharma companies. I'm curious how you've just thought about, like, in which disease areas or which uh, programs it makes sense to partner
1: versus kind of, you know, go all the way yourself. I think eventually we want to be able to go all the way ourselves in all of the therapeutic areas. But obviously we can't do everything all at once. And there's a tremendous amount to learn. So we ask the question, are there areas of biology where we could be capital efficient? So rare genetic diseases is a, is a great example. If you look at the clinical trials we're running now for multiple of these rare genetic diseases or areas of precision oncology, relatively small patient populations, not a lot of competition for trial sites. And so we're positioned where maybe these things cost 10 or $20 million to run a Phase two trial. Contrast that with... Cardiovascular metabolism, or you know, you're going to go run a, a weight loss trial or something, or a heart disease trial. You're talking about ten thousand patients and like a hundred million plus dollars. That is not a place for us as a company that wants to build some portfolio of programs for us to focus initially. But it could be a great place to partner because the only companies that can run a trial in that space are scaled companies with extraordinary resources. So maybe we partner there. And if you look at our partnerships, we have two large partnerships: one with Bayer and Fibrosis big intractable area of biology, and another with Roche and Genentech in mainly neuroscience, one oncology indication as well. Again, neuroscience, another huge area of unmet need, but where the timelines, the resources required to go in the clinic are really, really large. And so we're partnered with the best in those areas. And it allows us to both create value from our platform into those areas, potentially, but also to learn from great teams who know a lot about a space we haven't built in yet so that maybe one day we could build our own clinical development team in neuroscience. But not until we're done with that collaboration. And hopefully we get a lot of drugs across the line with our partners there along the way. Totally. And and it's
0: kind of the right way to think about you know, those partnerships. Like, obviously, you mentioned kind of just the, the resources to be able to conduct some of these longer study timelines, the kind of capabilities around like actually doing recruitment in these areas where there's tons of trials. Like, is it mostly around the trial side or is there kind of like R&D collaboration
1: as well? I mean, there, absolutely. There's R&D collaboration across the entire space. And I think we both learn from our partners about lots of elements of discovering and developing medicines, but also in many cases, I think they learn from us and the way our take on discovering and developing medicines. And so it creates a really nice opportunity for both groups to be pulled in a direction towards what we hope is a more efficient, innovative, exciting way to, to discover medicines. And we learn a lot. We hope they learn a lot. And so far, I think those partnerships are going really well.
0: So then as you think about kind of the goal of of eventually being end to end, does that kind of mean that, you know, in that future state, recursion has got some special sauce on the trial side? Like, is that, that seems like the next one for you guys to continue pushing the envelope on.
1: (laughs) It it could be. Um, What I could say is that we only want to build into spaces either we think we have some advantage in building or, or potentially buying into a space or where we have to. And so we only want to build into later stage clinical development commercialization, marketing, et cetera, if we thought we had some advantage, some perspective that was different, or if we had to. And so uh, I think you see us hedged, right? We've got some partnerships. We have our own pipeline. We're hedged to try and understand where the industry is going. Is this industry going to want to see us like Visa, where they're going to start believing in what we do at scale? And they say, you know what? We'll run the trials. You guys just do all the discovery across all these different diseases. Maybe then we don't have to build a much, much bigger clinical development team, or What we've learned so far is that in this industry, the currency is assets in the clinic. Like regardless of how cool the technology is, people want to see assets in the clinic and proof of concept readouts. And that's where the value inflection point is, not only for companies, but for patients, right? That's where people start getting excited. If that doesn't shift in some marked way, you'll probably see us move more towards the vertically integrated side. And I think that's how we've hedged ourselves for the last several years is to be ready for either of those eventualities. It makes a ton of sense. It seems like the
0: the kind of evolution of these financial arrangements, you know, of handing off of something at a certain stage are, are, are still very much in flux. And, and how much value is it? You know, to your point, I think today it's, it's the pure prize is just something all the way through. And it's kind of unclear if you can hand off something before then and still get, you know, any percent of the economic value you'd get of running it all the way through. But I think obviously, you know, it, it makes a ton of sense that folks are, are eagerly watching whether that might change. You know, you guys get a few more proof points and it's like, oh man, a recursion asset at an earlier stage, that is something that, that we may put a premium on relative to, to something else. That's exactly right. You know, I, I, the thing I'm impressed by is just like, I look at your pipeline, just the sheer breadth of diseases you're tackling is is incredibly impressive. I'm wondering like how you've thought about like what are the right areas to apply the platform to? I'm sure early on you were like, do we just go after a few or do we do all of these? Yeah, I would love to hear your, your take on that.
1: Well, from the very early days, we've been focused on scale. And so you know, even in the first few years of the company, we were exploring hundreds or thousands of genes associated with genetic diseases. More recently, we've now explored the entire genome. And what that means is that our scientists can develop programs based on – they don't need to build a team and build an assay to start a program. Now, to advance a program all the way through the clinic, of course, you have to build a team, you have to build assays, et cetera, a lot of local expertise. But our scientists have the freedom to explore. Like, if you and I had a conversation right now about kidney disease, I could open up our map. It's a web app. And I could start querying kidney disease genes and ask, like, is there some novel insight in our platform? And maybe there is. And I can just order an experiment to confirm or validate at some high dimensional way. And what that means is we've lowered the activation energy for a scientific team to just get excited about a novel idea. It's now you know tens of thousands of dollars for us to get to a confirmed and validated novel relationship in biology or chemistry. Now, to act on that means we do need to make a strategic decision. Like, we were mainly focused in oncology and genetic disease right now at recursion. Those are areas where our platform, we know it works better than other areas. They're areas where we think that there's an economic model that makes sense for us right now, especially in the current capital market kind of crisis in biotech, I would say. And so we certainly do narrow the focus, but we're building this Reservoir, so to speak, of programs and ideas that can be confirmed and validated. That maybe in two years we come back to this one and say it's not right right now. But you know, infectious disease, not a great commercial model right now. But maybe we end up partnering with you know the Gates Foundation or the federal government to build some interesting uh, extension of our platform in a couple years. We'd already have some of those insights already generated in our maps today, and that's I love that about what we do. It's 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 turning biology from kind of an artisanal bespoke process um, and drug discovery from an artisanal bespoke process with really smart people spending a ton of time ans- asking and answering questions into a search problem. So the same really smart, talented people can spend their time downstream on like a higher probability of success, already confirmed and validated relationship. I mean, I'm sure it must be hard not to go chase some of these threads that, that like come up, you know, when people are, are looking at this in other disease areas. <laughs> It's hard all the time. I mean, I was just interviewing somebody and we were looking through the map together and there was something I wanted to go chase. So (laughs) it takes a lot of discipline to stay focused. And what we've tried to do is actually automate a lot of this because we want our people focused on like not taking a program through all of these relatively repetitive processes. We want them focused on ideating the initial ideas for, for programs. And then once we've confirmed and validated a relationship that's novel and exciting to us, What's the killer experiment? Like, what's the organoid model or the patient cellular model or the animal model that gets us to believe this is real and worth investing more in? And we want to be a company that that fails fast. So, like, why do a bunch of studies to try and understand everything if there's one study that either gives you a go or no-go decision, and that takes a lot of work to be good at that, but I think we're really trying to to continually improve as a team to be as good as we can possibly be at getting to that killer experiment immediately so that we don't invest time in a program that we think is going to fail or that we don't think is going to fail but ultimately will.
0: I mean, how do you think about that in the beginning of the company? Because I imagine like there was probably pressure early on to, you know, get some insight and in some specific disease area as far along as possible. And at the same time, you have this incredible, you know, platform you're building
1: that you could go chase in a ton of different directions. So yeah, yeah, early on, how do you do that? Well, the good news is, my, you know, when I dropped out of med school, I dropped out not only with this idea for the platform, but also with this initial drug that we we had discovered, you know, with another lab that's collaborating with us. You know, uh, Tony Donato had suggested we look at this molecule, we put it into our system, we saw great results. And so we had it actually like a hit from the very beginning. And we had it working in animal models. And so what we essentially did is with a couple of gaps here and there, we sort of developed the platform and this early program in parallel and eventually got to the point where we had enough other hits coming in that we could have multiple programs. And so since the very early days of the company, we have had our own pipeline and a platform that are parallel foci. We didn't always intend to take them through clinical development ourselves. That became a necessary place to build because people weren't yet valuing the work that we'd done uh, outside of a small subset of folks. But that's kind of how it uh, how it arose. It's kind of been from the yeah. very beginning.
0: How did you run the company as CEO with like, you know, some folks working on the specific assets, some folks working on like the platform side, like how, how'd that all work?
1: I think you just create really clear prioritization. So, you know, this year we have five priorities for the company. And of course, we're doing things that are not on that list, but those are important priorities and they're listed in order of importance. And it's really hard, especially as the company grows. But what we try to do, and I'm sure we fail all the time, but our attempt as an executive team, as a leadership team, is to give clear priorities and context to our team so that they can make really good decisions in whatever specific area they're, they're working in. Totally.
0: I mean, one thing I think that's fascinating about the business is just like the recursion operating system you've built at this point is just, I mean, such an impressive amount of robotics automation, software, data infrastructure. You know, you built a lot of it, obviously, from scratch i 'm curious like there 's obviously been this rise of a lot more tech bio companies, folks kind of leveraging you know uh, AI for drug discovery in different ways and I wonder as, as you think about kind of like the landscape today and the opportunity, is there a place for folks to maybe take some of the things you built on the recursion operating system, build those as standalone companies, and like sell that into this set of tech bio companies and I ask because it seems like from the outside, every company that starts doing
1: that eventually just becomes a therapeutics company. It's it's a great question. And so we are starting to see this. There's a whole bunch of companies today. In fact, we just were talking to one the other day that's built a really nice system for essentially organizing your chemistry and your chemistry experiments and kind of the workflow of the company. We built our own tool to do that. And it's not pretty. It's not something that would want to sell externally or that somebody would pay us money for. But it works really well for us. And so we were not a customer for them. But if we were starting over and building Recursion today as a 21st century therapeutics company, we would immediately go use that that tool. And I think there's a bunch of companies like this, many, many companies like this that are are rolling up. And you see some of the biggest ones, like uh, Benchling and some of these other ones who are building a lot of the software tools that, you know, we actually are customers there. But a lot of companies who are building tools that if they weren't there, we'd be building that software ourselves, right? And so we love that they exist. And I think for a lot of other tech bio companies, it's going to be... A great opportunity to, to shortcut towards eventually what you know what your primary goal is, and not get distracted by all the infrastructure along the way. But for us, those things didn't exist when we needed them, so in many cases, we just had to build it ourselves.
0: Do you think those companies will like work as, as standalone companies? Because I'm struck by you know you were mentioning earlier this kind of you know the industry today obviously values you know assets all the way through, and so do you get sufficiently rewarded if you're handing off something before then? And it seems like. Similarly, I think there's maybe a question of, you know, you compare what you might be able to sell, you know, that that kind of chemistry software you mentioned versus if you really had an advantage, you know, taking that and trying to become a therapeutics company. Like, I'm curious, you know, as, as you think about those companies, is is there a path forward on, on just doing the kind of software side or is it merely a means to eventually, you know, build out something
1: broader? Absolutely. There's a wide variety of business models that could be successful here. I think it depends on what impact you want to have and how you define success. So, If generating a multi-billion dollar business with software is successful, which I think most people would argue it is, then there's going to be tons of opportunities to do that. If you want to discover and develop hundreds of new medicines, building a software company is not going to be. So it depends what your goal is. And I think we're also seeing a shift, right? Like. The current capital markets crunch is making it really hard for a lot of late-stage private companies in our space. It's kind of better to be public and later stage or to be in the very early days right now. If you're kind of Series BCD therapeutics company but you don't have clinical assets, it's just a hard time. And so, you know, that's going to create this gap. And what we're going to see is probably a new set of business models that arise. Maybe a lot of the newer companies aren't going to end up pursuing individual therapeutics. They are going to pursue this software model, and they're going to sell into large pharma, biotech companies who are now really starting to understand the importance of thinking in a digitally native way. They're seeing this from their employees. They're seeing this from companies like us who are pushing the field. And so they're ready to start being customers of these of these companies. So I don't know where the landscape will shift to, but it is clear to me that it is always shifting and you've always got to be hedged. You've always got to be ready to react to those things you can't control, like how the world around you changes.
0: Yeah, no, it's a really interesting point. And I think actually a, a, a nice segue to, you know, just kind of reflecting on, on you know, the AI for drug discovery space as a whole, right? I mean, you really were one of the pioneers in this space, I think it's become, you know, even more the topic de jour at every conference these days. And I'm curious, like, you know, taking a step back, how you kind of categorize the space today as a field, you know, relative to when you started Recursion in 2013.
1: It's extraordinary. I mean, there's so many incredible people, incredible ideas, incredible technology in this space. There's also a whole bunch of hype. And, and so. You know we're at this important inflection point where a subset of these companies are getting to meaningful milestones. Like we're going to be reading out phase two trials in the next few years. That's a really important milestone, not only for us but for other companies in the space. You look at Relay has read out some trials. Accenture has programs moving into the clinic. Um, you see companies that have partnerships where you're starting to see programs move into the clinic with partners. These are huge opportunities for our field, and it's super exciting to me that there's so many different companies that are moving in this direction, because ultimately, of course, I want recursion to be successful. But at the end of the day, if we're not, I want the field to be successful, too, because I think it has so much promise. What we've got to guard against, though, are, of course, you know, the subset of folks who are making claims that are difficult to back up. And they, you know, have the opportunity to tarnish the space generally. Like, there's going to be failures. There's going to be successes. But, you know, you need to be upfront about the probability of success with folks. And hopefully we'll meet, maybe exceed, but hopefully just meet the probability of success of the rest of the industry to start. And we can build from there.
0: Yeah, well, I'm curious, I mean, of all the stuff happening right now, I mean, obviously there's so many different approaches, you know, outside of what Recursion is doing. Like, what, what do you find most exciting of, of some of the progress in the space?
1: Yeah, I think there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff happening in chemistry right now. A lot of generative AI, um, obviously looking at what AlphaFold and others have done in the space of protein folding and what that's going to enable for biologics and sort of ligand protein interaction predictions, I think is super, super cool. So that's a space I'm really actively watching. The other space that I think is further from where we are today, but is very interesting to watch is just kind of the clinical space. And there's a whole bunch of early companies that have tried to innovate in clinical trial design, some more successful than others. Obviously, innovating in a highly regulated space is hard to do, but I'm watching those companies. I'm looking for successes and failures that can help guide where we go or who we partner with. And I think especially as large data sets from electronic health records become kind of integrated with large genomic data sets, there's an opportunity for one or more companies either to build into that space or for us to partner into that space to potentially innovate in the way trials are done. And we're seeing this, you know, oncology and other areas. You've seen some really cool innovations in the way that trials are done, innovations that I think are meaningful for patients and meaningful for companies as, as well.
0: Certainly around like everything from study design and easier recruiting, but also you know I mean, rural control arms and, and and the whole kind of host of pragmatic trials, and it's a it's a, a pretty exciting space. I mean, certainly in oncology where you guys are spending a, a fair amount of time, there's a, there's been a lot of interesting stuff there.
1: Or even like in our own work, like we have cameras in the cages of animal models, right? And we can predict so much about how an animal's responding to a therapy, both good and bad, simply from a video sensor in their cage. Now. We're not building here. I'm, like, just totally talking about 10 years from now. But I believe in some form of the wearable or some sort of sensor and monitor system because I see what it can do in another physiologic system. Now, I'm not suggesting we go put cameras in everybody's cages or everybody's homes, I should say. But at the same time, like, you know that if you could have the right sensors – in an environment, you could gather a lot of data that could be helpful in some contexts of biology. So what is that? what sensors? Is it, the, is it the one we wear in our watch? Is it going to be the Alexa system in our house and Amazon starting to come in? And, you know, I saw that they were doing a phase one trial recently or helping with a phase one trial in Seattle. So, like, you see Amazon coming from one side, Alphabet with DeepMind and Isomorphic is coming from one side. The pharma companies are starting to invest in this space. What an exciting time to be working at the intersection of technology and biology. And, and, you know, I think to your
0: point, like rather than just read out one endpoint, uh, the amount you can learn from from gathering so much more data in a trial makes a tremendous amount of sense. Well, I'm excited for as, as you guys put your sites there, I'm sure there'll be lots of cool things you you end up doing in the space. You know, I, I guess I, I'd be curious just at the broadest level as you think about, you know, where this whole world is headed. I'll ask the, the, the highest level question, which is like, what do you think drug development looks
1: like in like 25 years? Twenty-five years. Uh, Take your take your number of years that is in the future. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I think because I I think you have to think along that kind of timescale to see really massive shift in this industry. But I think in twenty-five years we'll be building n-of-one medicines at scale for most patients with most diseases. So like. Most people won't have the same disease as almost anyone else. You'll have a version of that disease that's pretty specific to you based on your genome, your environmental upbringing, et cetera. Like you'll have a pretty specific to you disease, and we'll be able to either identify the right medicine for you or even build a novel medicine for you, give it to you in an economic model that works for humanity and that affects a most most patients with most of the diseases we work on today. 25 years, it's going to be vastly different. Five years, not so much. It's like, this is a Bill Gates quote, we overestimate what we can do in a year and we underestimate what we can do in 10. And so if you're talking about 25, I think it's going to be just extraordinarily different. It's really interesting. I'm curious, like, what does that mean for the pharma business model? Like, I feel like today you've
0: got these blockbuster drugs like Take a K Truda, and the reality is, like, they work really well for some patients, they don't work as well, and, and they're kind of just like these broad things that are used across the board. And it makes total sense we'll get to a world in which there's something that's much more tailored to each patient. I wonder if, if that ends up, you know, needing to be priced like rare disease drugs are priced. It, it, it seems a very different model than, than kind of what we have today. I'm curious how you, what that means for like pharma companies of the future.
1: I mean, I I don't know because we're building something a bit different. But what I could imagine thinking if I were at a larger pharma company is I better be hedging and getting into all of these spaces as much as I can. And I better be thinking about different economic models because the reality is the pricing system in the U.S. is not going to – it will not exist in 25 years because it is not sustainable. So, how are you positioning yourself to have inexpensive medicines for patients and still build a profitable business that your shareholders can get behind? And what that looks like to me is trying to find ways to move failure earlier in the pipeline. So, like, if you could eliminate all phase three failures and move them to, like, day two using a Omics system, and of course that's not possible today, but if you could make that shift, you could start to make the discovery and development of medicines much more economic. And if you can keep pushing failure earlier, build better and better models that allow us to explore biology and chemistry very broadly and say, this is the drug for this type of patient, and there will still be Cotrudas, there will still be drugs you know, from aspirin to Keytruda that work for many people. But we will have very, very few drugs where we don't know ahead of time which patient it's going to work for. So we're not going to have patients going on Keytruda who end up not responding. That's going to be really, really rare in 25 years. I think we're going to know it's going to work for you, Jacob. It's not going to work for you, Chris. But for you, Chris, it's this other drug. And maybe for you, Cindy, like there's none of these drugs are going to work. But here's why, you know, based on your DNA and everything we know about you, it's probably this, and we've already got a molecule or a medicine or even a gene therapy that we think is going to modulate that in a way that makes you, uh, you know, resistant to that disease in the future. I think in 25 years, that'll be happening pretty broadly. I mean, it's, it's an
0: incredible vision and, and certainly one that it seems like you guys are at the, at the forefront of pushing toward. You know, I, I think we always like to end here with, with this kind of quick fire round where we ask you a few quick questions. And, uh, you know, I think we've we touched on some of this stuff, but would love to kind of maybe to kick it off. We'd just be curious. Obviously, people talk about AI for drug discovery a lot. I'm curious what you think is the most overhyped and underhyped thing in the space today.
1: I mean, the most overhyped thing is the idea that AI is going to do it all. And it's a it's a magic bullet that's going to cure everything. Like, the reality is AI is a really useful tool, and it's more useful some places and less useful others, and there's still a lot that people are going to need to do, even in 25 years, to help discover and develop medicine. So I think that's the biggest piece of hype, is that it's not, like, this silver bullet. Um, It doesn't automate away the need for lab scientists and, you know, No, 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 no. Yeah, no, there's still a ton of of that work, and there will be for a very long time. Most underhyped thing, the most underhyped thing. Honestly, the most underhyped thing in our space is people... All of the companies talk about their technology, but a lot of the companies don't spend enough time talking about their people, their culture. And the reality is whether you're a tech company, a biotech company, no matter how good your technology or AI is, if you don't have great people and great culture, you're not going to be successful. And so I think like we just need to spend more time talking about that as a subsector of the industry. Totally. And then obviously, you know, you started recursion in
0: 2013. I'm wondering, you know, if you could go back now with all the knowledge you've accumulated and do it over, what would you
1: have done differently? I mean, I would have used CRISPR earlier or invented <laughs> CRISPR because uh, siRNA <laughs> was a really rough technology that we used in the early days. No, but joking aside, I, yeah, I would have hired some more experienced managers and some more experienced drug hunters earlier into the company. I undervalued both of those things in the first few years of the company, and it's not that they they make everything better, but you need the right balance of innovation and useful naivete alongside. Experience, wisdom, and and you know, honed talent.
0: Yeah, I mean, how did that br- bringing that experience, wisdom in, kind of change the the approach you guys were doing, or, or kind of the day to day operations?
1: I mean, it just like. Uh, so many ways. It, it, it's, it's not a quick-fire response, is the answer.
0: <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> we always try to like get, you know, we, we always end up going on some tangent in these, but uh, that that is that is very fair, not quick-fire. <laughs> you know, I guess uh, another area is just, you know, a lot of R&D and, and kind of pharma as a whole touches, you know, the policy world. You know, I'm curious, if we gave you a
1: magic wand and you could change one thing on the, on the policy side. What would you change? I mean, th- I think that our regulators – have a really hard job and they they do it pretty well. So there's not a ton of policies that would come to mind. But one that I would get rid of, and you know I'm going to get some flack for this, but I would get rid of direct-to-consumer advertising in our industry. Like you watch these TV commercials occasionally and you don't have any idea what the drug does. And I don't know why people are spending money on them. I would move our industry in a direction where we generated data sets and we shared them with physicians and patients openly Wherever they could access them, like on the internet, where you can search for your disease, and we let people look at the data and judge for themselves, and let the medicine stand on the merits and have a little bit less marketing behind them.
0: That's what, yeah. I, mean. I guess we're one of the one of the few countries that actually OECD countries that actually allows that. Though it does it does seem to help the sports leagues with their uh, with their advertising revenue.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it helps somebody, but um, I'm not <laughs> clear who it is and why we're doing it. So hopefully, Recursion is never one of those companies that like we'll talk about Recursion. We'll advertise what we do, but I really want to. Avoid avoid these like super generic, like, have you ever been sick? If so, here's a drug that could cure you. And oh, by the way, here's the 600 things that it could do that are bad. They say very fast. I just don't get it. Anyway, but that's me. (laughs) I'm, I'm naive, I guess.
0: No, no, it makes uh makes sense. Let me look, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm sure folks will want to go dig into, into a lot more of the details here. What's the best way for people to learn more about kind of what you're doing at recursion and, you know, some of the work you've done?
1: Well, uh, follow us on Twitter. Follow us on LinkedIn. We're always posting about the work that we do, the people, the technology, the processes, our partnerships. Uh, you can look at our website. You can listen to this podcast to hear about us and lots of other cool uh, uh, groups that are working in the space. Uh, and I think, yeah, just following us online is the very best way. Or if you happen to be at a conference or something, come say hello. Awesome. Uh, well, Chris, this has been a blast. Thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time.